This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9, with available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. to Dev News, the news show for developers by developers, where we cover the latest in the world of tech. I'm Saranya Barak, founder of Disco. And I'm Josh Pitts, principal engineer at Forum. This week, we're talking about how a developer irreversibly lost a community of 54,000 stars and watchers that he built up over the past 10 years on GitHub, and how unregulated crypto mining wrecked the power of an entire New York town. Then we speak with Vidushi Marta, Senior Program Officer at Article 19, where she leads the research and engagement on the human rights implications of machine learning. To get her perspective on the artificial intelligence regulations and systems different cities around the world are implementing. So you can be super transparent about the algorithm itself, but when it comes to machine learning systems, the algorithm doesn't mean much, the source code doesn't mean much if I don't also have access to, say, the database. Josh. Yes. Imagine this. Okay. You're working on your beloved open source project on GitHub. Mm. You're click clacking along. <laughs> Not my dad, my click clack. And you slip into autopilot. So in your mind, you're fiddling with a new repository connected to the main repo. Nobody follows this new repository and it just contains some profile readmes. And you decide that, you know, you want to hide these readmes by making the new repo private. No big deal. But in your absent-mindedness, you don't realize that you're not actually in that new repo. Instead, you're in a very similarly titled main repo, which you've just made private, causing you to permanently delete all of your stars and watchers. Oh, not good. Yeah. So this is what happened to a programmer, Jakob Rosterchil, the creator of a CLI HTTP client called HTTPi, which sounds delicious, which was created to make API interaction from the terminal more intuitive and was super popular, one of the top 80 most popular public repos of GitHub. I use this app. I love it. Yeah, nice. So if you were one of the 54,000 stargazers or watchers, which have been built up over the past decade, this project's existence, now you have to go back and star or watch the repo again so you can you know, get any notifications about that repository. So Rossichel says in a blog post about the snafu that it took around 30 minutes for GitHub to cascade delete the decades worth of stars and watchers. And even though he realized right away what happened, he couldn't really stop it. And he writes, quote, 
All I could do was start writing to GitHub support, refresh the page, and wait for the number of stars to reach zero before I can make it public again. Oh, that must, that must be, be so, so frustrating. Painful, I know. Oh. You're like, oh, it's just a button. Like, just let me go just back. Watching the number go down, realizing it's mm-hmm. already done. Over 30 minutes, yeah. <laughs> now, just how easy is it to make this mistake? Well, Rosachill's main repo is called HTTPy slash HTTPy. And the new repo was called HTTPy slash .github. To confirm that you're changing permission of the repo you mean to, GitHub has you confirm your decision by making you type in the name of the repo to confirm the switch from public to private. And also does the same thing if you want to you know, delete the repo or do any other destructive actions. However, there's nothing in the dialog box that tells you just how many stars and watchers will be permanently deleted, which Rostachil says would have immediately given him pause. In the post, he writes, quote, Show, don't tell. Design confirmation dialogues in a don't-make-me-think fashion. When the user is about to destroy something, don't describe that as a potential scenario in abstract words that the user needs to convert to mental images and put values on, end quote. Now, the ironic thing about the situation is that GitHub itself had once made the same mistake in November 2020, accidentally making one of their public repos private, also losing that repo stars and watchers. However, it was not permanent. Right after the human error, GitHub CEO tweeted, quote, a developer mistakenly made the GitHub desktop repo private this morning. Flipping it back doesn't restore the stars and a few other things. So we are restoring from DB backup. That's all, end quote. Rostertil says that when he reached out to GitHub to see if they could restore his repo stars and watchers, they refused to do it, saying that there would be undesirable side effects and there would be the cost of resources to do this. He responded by offering to give GitHub financial compensation for the resources required to restore his repo, but they refused. At the time of this recording, which is about six days after the accident, HTTPy has 16.9 thousand stars and 49 watchers. Mm. What do you make of all this, Josh? What's your take? What do you think? Well, when I read through the blog post and took a look at the screenshots, it's a warning from GitHub that says you're changing the repository visibility. Right. It does have a warning saying this potentially destructive action. I know for a fact I've done this in the past and I've just copy and pasted the name of the repo. <laughs> and I've also actually read what's in Like I never read. I was like, make private. Whatever, yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, it actually says you will lose all stars and watchers. I've done this a bunch of times like i'm making a new repository and i'm like you know what i don't like the name of it oh i think i'm gonna delete this i'm gonna do a different repository Mm. i know for a fact i've cruised through this warning box a number of times and it never occurred to me that bad things would happen Mm -hmm. even though it spells it out in this ui yeah yeah and even though it has you type to confirm oh we all just copy and paste it come on (laughs) okay so i am a good user and i always type my repo names oh wow because you know it says uh it's not just github that does this other apps use too but it'll say like danger zone it's like bright red you know and it'll like these are destructive actions and they'll say are you sure i'm like oh my god am i sure i don't know it's this is dangerous like am i sure i want to do this careful i actually am very paranoid so i i don't copy i do actually type but you know obviously deleting a repo is a destructive action, right? Like it's it's freaking gone. That's it. But yeah. going from public to private doesn't feel destructive. So to me, it's not intuitive. It's not obvious that, oh, if I just, you know, make this private, that I'm just going to lose a bunch of data on that repo. Like that connection 
to me is not yeah. obvious, you know, like, I mean, I, I guess it, it makes sense that, you know, I wouldn't have any additional watchers because obviously you can't watch Pride Repo. Like, I, I get that part. But to me, I would guess that if I flipped it back, then I would, I don't know, I guess I just assumed I would get it back. It doesn't, the connection wasn't obvious to me. And I was, I, I would be surprised by that. And I, when I read this, I was like, I could imagine the database design in my head. I was like, oh yeah, there's all these watchers. There's all these stars. It's private now. Notifications are probably hooked into this. Mm -hmm. Like if you look through the tweet threads that the author of the blog post posted, there's some response from people at GitHub saying like, oh, we can't really roll it back easily. We've tried it in the past. They oh, might be referring okay. to the time that they did do a restore of a database. And it said, uh, quote, we tried this with a couple of projects in the past. We found it caused a bunch of bad things to happen. Huh. That's why we pop up dialogue before we make the project private. I found other tweets referring to like it screwed up notifications. And so oh, in my mind, I was like, oh, okay, I get it. They probably just key the notifications off of watchers and stargazers. And if it's public, they don't want to send notifications and you can save database space by getting rid of all this data. And probably somebody thought like, hey, it's not like privileged data. It's just a watch, whatever. So I think there's a couple of things happening in the data design mm. that I, I'm not defending, but I could understand what I can defend. I don't like it, but I could definitely <laughs> defend GitHub saying, look, we're not going to do a database restoration mm. just for your project. Who knows what other things that could trigger? They mm. make it sound like they tried it once. It didn't work out. And also from like a customer support perspective, mm -hmm. what kind of precedent does that set? I do get like, that. If I, I get that. Yeah. If I accidentally delete a file, can I get my thing rolled back? Yeah. If I, yeah. I've closed PRs before. God, I wish I could undo that. <laughs> you know? So I, I, I can understand GitHub saying like, eh, sorry. Mm. The bigger thing to me is that I was really surprised by the emphasis that open source projects place on the number of stars mm. and watchers that they have. And do you think that's really community? I understand mm. there's value in terms of getting notifications about what's happening with your code, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. like, is that really community? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it's community, right? I was actually reading a blog post recently that was about just marketing in general, and it was titled something like, your followers are not your fans, right? Like, just uh, because someone is yeah. following you and, you know, gives you a, a thumbs up does not mean they're your community. It's not mean they're going to buy your stuff. It doesn't, you know what I mean? Like, that's just, it's two different mm -hmm. concepts. But I do think that there is a lot of value in just the social proof of a repo because whenever I am looking at an open source project or, or just checking out, you know, the work that a developer is doing online, especially if it's a project I've never heard of, I need help assessing, is this legitimate? Is it real? Is mm -hmm. it serious? Is it someone's kind of, you know, spun it up over the weekend toy project kind of thing? Or is this some, you know, hardcore stuff? And one of the easiest ways to do that is to see how many, you know, stargazers and watchers there are. And if there's no stars, no watchers, I'm like, okay, this is probably just, you know, mm. a small little thing and, you know, maybe keep it moving. But if I see tens of, of thousands, you know, of people who've essentially given that repo some mark of approval, at, at least at some point, that makes me go, wow, this, this person's serious. You know, this repo is a serious project and it definitely brings legitimacy to that project. And I can imagine where if you are trying to start a community, build a community, I think that that legitimacy does matter. If you're trying to get sponsors, I think that legitimacy does matter. Mm. Even in situations where, you know, you just want to get a job. If you have a repo that has 
you know, 15,000 stars, that probably makes you look like a more badass developer, right? So I do think that there's a lot of value in it. But I, I understand that maybe the value isn't technically community, but I do think it's related to community. Yeah, I think everybody could, uh, could agree that it's way too easy to cruise past this particular dialogue box. I mean, I, mm. there's some mock-ups in the blog post. I think they're great mock-ups. Just showing you, like, instead of saying, like, all your watchers, all your stars could be deleted, like, actually putting those numbers that'd out. That'd be nice. Like, yeah, is that'd it, be helpful. Is it 100? Is it 500? Right. That could help. Mm-hmm. It sucks, though. I feel I feel really bad for this yeah. developer. I Over a use decade. Ishigai. I love it. Yeah, I know. That's tough. I looked, and sure enough, I wasn't watching or had it start anymore. Oh, so. you're a terrible community member. What are you doing? This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. So there was a really wild story in the MIT Technology Review about a New York town called Plattsburgh that had its power infrastructure pushed to the limit by crypto miners. Plattsburgh's electrical rates are low compared to the rest of the country thanks to cheap hydroelectric power from nearby Niagara Falls. In 2017, a subsidiary of the crypto mining firm CoinMint came to Plattsburgh and leased a family dollar store and immediately filled the building with servers, running them 24 hours a day. The amount of energy they were typically drawing could have powered 4,000 homes. After this, other crypto miners followed suit. To give some context, every Bitcoin transaction uses more kilowatts of power than the average American uses in an entire month. So in January 2018, the city reached its quota of hydropower from the Niagara Power Authority, and they needed to purchase additional energy at really high rates. This, of course, increased the community's energy bill. Not only that, but there were other effects, such as the fans that crypto miners were using to cool down their servers caused high-frequency whines that neighbors could hear. Over time, Plattsburgh stopped any new crypto mines in the city and imposed higher rates on high-density energy users, and they updated their building codes to deal with the noise. Plattsburgh's local crypto mining issues aside, according to Digiconomist's Bitcoin Energy Consumption Index, Worldwide crypto mining produces 36.95 megatons of CO2 a year, which is about as much as the entire country of New Zealand. And in a paper cited by the Technology Review article, cryptocurrency's energy usage could rise by another 30% within a decade, almost doubling its current CO2 footprint. So the moratorium in Plattsburgh on new crypto mining is now over, but with all the new regulations they've put in place, there hasn't been much renewed interest. Instead, crypto mining firms have moved on to the neighboring town of Messina, which lacks the regulations Plattsburgh has in place. Hmm. Very interesting story about how this town struggled to recognize the effects of what was happening. Mm -hmm. They started out with great intentions. And in 2017, if you were a small town and someone said, hey, there's an abandoned family dollar, 
we'd like to lease it. We just need some extra electricity going to it. I'm sure most cities would have been great with yeah, that. Yeah, sounds like a great deal. Yeah. Some interesting things I took away from the article. At the time, Plattsburgh didn't have a city income tax. And most of the crypto mining firms leased the buildings, meaning that they weren't paying any property taxes. Mm. So hmm. none of these crypto firms were bringing in additional revenue wow. to the city. Useless. Pretty useless. And that's a huge issue for cities is recouping the cost of all this infrastructure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Something else I took away from the article, Plattsburgh went through a couple of years of putting a moratorium on these new facilities. They beefed up their regulations. They put in noise ordinances. Mm -hmm. so you couldn't have these high-pitched fans disturbing neighbors. They put in regulations that would require crypto mining firms to outline how much energy they were going to use and pay to upgrade infrastructure if it was going to have a material impact on the entire city's energy usage. Mm -hmm. And the result of all of that were that crypto miners just moved next door. Mm -hmm. They went to another mm -hmm. town that didn't have these protections in place. And one of the experts of the story points out that because crypto mining is so profitable, it is just cheaper and easier for crypto mining firms right. to pack up right and move next door. They don't have a vested interest in staying in a town where the regulations are in place. Yeah, I mean, it's I have a couple of thoughts on this. I'm wondering, does Plattsburgh or, you know, any of these other cities who've implemented some of these regulations, do they care that the crypto firm left? I mean, it sounds like they weren't really doing much good anyway. I don't know if they were right. you know, hiring local talent or contributing to the economy in some way, but it doesn't really sound like they are. Yeah, not very much. These, these yeah. crypto farms are mostly automated. Right, exactly. Nobody, they're not hiring anyone. <laughs> they're not hiring yeah. anyone. They're not bringing like factory jobs to the city or anything no. like that. So, you know, for, for Plattsburgh, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, like, are you hoping that, you know, the, the company will stay with these regulations or was the regulation, you know, kind of a way to be like, okay, great, we got rid of them, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, that's... That's how I read it. And I, I draw a lot of parallels between this and like, say, Airbnbs. I know a lot right, of like right. tourist towns yes. have struggled with the Airbnbs. And with Airbnbs, at least you can impose things like occupancy fees, mm -hmm. hotel fees, you know, recoup some of that cost. But in Plattsburgh case, they were rentals. They weren't mm -hmm, really mm -hmm. contributing any property tax income. They're doing nothing. Yeah. What do you think about larger regulations on crypto mining? Because, you know, at the end of the day, Plattsburgh put all these restrictions in place. The crypto miners just moved next door. Right. I'm sure if Masena puts some regulation in place, they'll move on to the next small town. Yeah. So do you think this might be an opportunity for a state or a federal level mm -hmm. of responsible energy usage? Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely see a huge opportunity for the state, the federal government to step in and say, we're going to basically protect our, our, our cities or we're going to protect our smaller towns. It's great that they were able to solve their problem, but ideally, you don't want cities to have to go through that process, right, of welcoming right. in a firm and then waiting for them to mess it up and then, you know, <laughs> responding with laws and kicking them out again. Like, that's just kind of a, you know, a silly process. So I think there's definitely yeah. an opportunity for the federal government, at least the state government, to step in and say, you know, we're going to protect our towns, we're going to protect our cities. And it feels like, I don't know, it feels kind of like an easy win, doesn't it? We're protecting our small yeah. towns from these stupid high bills and from, you know, kind of mean taking advantage of a little bit and we're gonna oh absolutely protect you so it feels like a, a good opportunity kind of politically and a good opportunity just mm. in terms of you know saving these cities and towns the the cost the time and the headache of having to deal one by one with these different crypto firms 
You know, I live in a small town and something I have learned is that I imagined that government at all levels was filled with like, you know, professional politicians, career people in a small town. Many times the government, they're working nights and weekends. This is a second job for them or this is a volunteer position. Mm. And so a lot of these small towns, they don't have the expertise in crypto mining environmental impacts or That's they might not even point. have yeah yeah they might not even have the time or attention to look at this stuff and a lot of our small towns are really stressed they're volunteer governments and they need help and i think it's i think mm. it's cruel to expect every single town to figure this out on their own that is such a good point i didn't even consider that right because at the state level at the federal level you probably have, as as you mentioned, more you know career politicians, more experienced politicians, probably more you know campaign dollars and resources and ammunition to kind of put together effective laws, put them together a little bit faster, and really take a stand. So even if it if it was doable on a small town level, you probably just get better laws and better results if you're able to go a step up from that. Yeah. Speaking of regulations, coming up next, we take a look at different AI regulations and systems that various cities around the world are implementing after this. Here with us is Vidushi Marda, Senior Program Officer at Article 19. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us about what Article 19 is and your role there. So Article 19 is an international human rights organization that focuses on the protection of freedom of expression, particularly around the world. I work in the digital team at Article 19 that focuses on embedding and strengthening human rights considerations in technology. And I lead our work on artificial intelligence research and engagement globally. So part of that includes working in technical standardization bodies where we want to embed stronger human rights considerations into the technical design of technology and technical systems. And a big part of my work also focuses on building evidence of what machine learning looks like in different jurisdictions around the world with a focus on non-Western contexts. So you've talked about the need for ethics and AI and responsibility in its implementation. Can you give us some examples in which AI can and has gone wrong when these things aren't considered? <laughs> How much time do you have? I, I feel Can you give like... us some examples where it's gone right, I guess, would be a better question. <laughs> I mean, I, I guess, you know, just broadly speaking, I think there's a tendency to kind of use artificial intelligence because it's this shiny new object and shiny new technology that's thought of as magic and then that's thought of as, you know, this kind of silver bullet to all sorts of complex problems. And so... In the enthusiasm to kind of deploy these systems, what ends up happening is that there is little consideration, if any, for the societal implications of their use and also, you know, for the surrounding regulations or legal basis for their use. So, for instance, in India, where I live, the government is currently proposing, you know, to build this nationwide automated facial recognition system that will seamlessly plug all police stations along with each other to be able to track people in real time. 
They're going to be using pictures from newspapers, from police raids, from all existing government databases to feed the system. That's also going to be used for live facial recognition. All of this in the absence of any legal basis to use it, right? So then the question becomes mm. like, we're just assuming that these systems should be used and we're putting this really dangerous cart before the horse. And we're kind of running with the assumption that these systems are legal, right? And the use of facial recognition across the world has shown that not only is it not accurate, but it also risks marginalizing people who have been historically disadvantaged and singled out by authorities, whether it's in London or New York or most places, I would say. I'm struggling to think of a single good use of facial recognition, to be honest. <laughs> I'll let you know if I do think of one. And the, the one that I do want to talk about, which I think is particularly interesting, is in 2020, we conducted some research along with Shazeda Ahmad. I looked into the emotion recognition market in China. And what we found was that there's, you know, this huge market of systems that have no scientific basis and definitely don't have any kind of surrounding legal regulatory framework, but, you know, is going to be a multi-billion dollar industry in, in a couple of years and kind of already is. Mm. So there was a Wall Street Journal piece that recently came out that looked at a bunch of different cities from all around the world and what they were doing to regulate AI. And I wanted to go through some of these regulations with you just to kind of get your thoughts to see if, if any of them, you know, maybe sound good or sound promising. Mm -hmm. So we'll start with Amsterdam and Helsinki. They've created websites people can go to that try to explain the algorithms like the city's automated parking control and trash complaint reports. What are your thoughts on this type of implementation? I think the the Amsterdam and Helsinki example of like AI registers, right? It's an interesting mm. proposal because it's the first time that this has happened at the level of the city. And I know there's a lot of excitement around it, but I would have to say, keeping in, in line with my uh, <laughs> borderline pessimism, <laughs> I, I am very skeptical of mm. these kinds of registers for a number of reasons, right? So firstly, if we look at, you know, what these registers include, right, in the Amsterdam example, right, they're saying we're going to catalog all of the AI systems that the municipality uses and we're going to let you know, like, what data we used and how we tested for bias and things like that, right? So the first issue with that is that, you know, transparency is not an end in and of itself. So just because I know something is being used, that's very different from me having a meaningful way of engaging with bad outcomes or confusing outcomes that come from that system, right? The second is mm. that these registers almost have like what I like to call like a legitimizing force for artificial huh. intelligence systems because the implicit assumption is once we have an AI system on this register, we are fulfilling our part of being accountable and transparent. And so this is legitimate use because we're telling you how we check for bias, right? Whereas the real question yes. for me, especially yeah. from like a human rights lens and a civil liberties lens is to say, can we please question the need for these systems in the first place? Right? Do we need it? Can we establish some legality? Can we demonstrate the need for it before we start thinking about how we're going to address it and how we're going to you know, be transparent about its use? Can we ask the much tougher question of how can we legally justify its use, right? Especially if mm. we're thinking about technologies that do have a potentially rights infringing impact on societies. We do have to, you know, demonstrate through different legal standards, depending on where you are in the world, that this is a necessary and proportionate use of technology. So that's another way in which I think the registers kind of like distract from the real conversation, right? So 
going back to the emotion recognition example I gave, let's assume this hypothetical city uses like 10 emotion recognition systems for different things and two predictive policing systems, right? And they are super diligent about having all of these details on the register. No amount of details can make these uses legitimate from a human rights perspective. And so the registers kind of take us away from the real questions that we should be asking. Mm. The other thing with the registers is also, you know, we focus on what systems the government is deploying. But in reality, if you look at smart cities around the world, or if you look at how fancy AI technologies make their way into our societies, they do so either through the route of like trials and pilots, right? Or it's companies that say, we're going to provide this to you for free and we're not going to charge you and you don't have to go through like a painful procurement process because you're not giving us any money, but we're going to like trial this use, right? We saw this happen a lot after COVID hit different areas of the world as well. And none of these registers will be able to catch those, right? Because it's not the government deploying it. It's companies deploying it on behalf of governments, where the government has now become the consumer almost and not the implementer of technology. So when we look at like the real world use cases of technologies, especially those around like hiring and law enforcement and stuff like that, you know, the mechanism of registers isn't really going to catch it. And I mean, for folks who are interested in this, I would also suggest reading this excellent paper by Dr. Corinne Kath and Fika Janssen, where they look into the Amsterdam case in particular. Yeah, we'll put that paper in our show notes. What do you think about the idea that some have floated around making AI algorithms completely transparent for public scrutiny? So AI transparency is useful in that it's good to know when we're being subject to a machine and not a human, right, on the other end. but it's not a solution to some of the more complex questions we have for a number of reasons, right? So you can be super transparent about the algorithm itself, but when it comes to machine learning systems, the algorithm doesn't mean much. The source code doesn't mean much if I don't also have access to, say, the database, right? I don't have access to different logics that were used. Right. I don't have access to the weights that you used or like, you know, the internal metrics that were used in order to decide whether this was worth deploying or not as the case may be. But more importantly, I think the reason that I'm skeptical of transparency of the algorithm itself is it doesn't actually solve the problem of concentration of power, right? So let's assume that you're using a machine learning system for hiring and someone's, you know, didn't make it through the first round of applications because they smiled weirdly, right? Or their voice tone was different from what the algorithm was taught to think of as promising in a candidate. It doesn't actually help someone who's trying to get a job to be able to scrutinize an algorithm, right? If we're really trying to level the playing field by way of being more transparent, then I think the power cannot be concentrated in the hands of few people who have the ability and skill to be able to audit these systems, right? That's not a structural solution at the level of the individual, at least. What impact do you think making algorithms more transparent and available would have on AI research, especially ethics in AI research. Do you think there's a benefit to making it transparent in terms of how it, it you know, it impacts the way research is done or research is thought of? The value of making algorithms transparent, not at the level of the individual, but just in terms of, you know, like you said, like research and right. also at the level of institutions, is that it can then be opened up to third party audits, or it could be used to kind of 
query an algorithm to kind of reverse engineer the outputs that the particular system is giving us in a given context. Mm-hmm. It is not a one-stop shop because you can have a perfectly transparent algorithm, but if the premise of the algorithm is problematic, then transparency almost acts like a distraction. Like, you know, it's a bit like transparency washing almost, right? To say like, oh, we're using a predictive <laughs> policing system but we're super transparent about the fact that we're racist so it's like, cool okay. <laughs> exactly um, that's potentially very worrying right, and also right. you know I think conversations around transparency often lead to conversations around like impact assessments and stuff like that right and the problem with all of those is that we assume that we know all the the bad possible outcomes at the beginning, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to be transparent about the fact that we checked for this bias and that bias right, but right. you know if all of the examples that we've collected over the years, like even if you look at the compass algorithm, they didn't think to check it for racial bias, which in hindsight seems like painfully hmm. obvious to us, but that isn't really always indicative of, you know, thinking through all possible bad outcomes in practice. Let's look at another municipality. Mm-hmm. Santa Clara County made it mandatory for any law enforcement agency that wants to use surveillance technology to have to submit a request for public input and detail how and why it will be used. What do you think about cities calling for public input and public oversight? I think it's fantastic, to be honest. Yeah, we is got a good one. Optimism. <laughs> yeah, we got one win. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there, there are ways we could also improve that. But just in terms of, you know, how we position power and how we position different decision-making processes that lead to a particular system being used, I think having the community actually have a meaningful voice in deciding whether something gets used or not is a breath of fresh air, right? Because often what happens in a lot of jurisdictions is that like the government has decided, right, that they're going to use like facial recognition and predictive policing and and whatnot. And then they say, okay, we're going to open up for public comments for a two-month period and you can send us like, you know, research papers and stuff like that. And at the end, the government ends up doing what they wanted to do anyway, because there's no onus on state authorities to say, well, we took into account everything that we heard from the public. Mm. And so we've changed our position for this reason, or we decided to not change our position for that reason, right? So Mm. I think the logic of allowing the community to decide what is a legitimate use or not, and not just like, you know, decide, but also putting the onus on authorities who want to use certain artificial intelligence systems to demonstrate why it's necessary and to demonstrate that they are capable and worthy of trust and responsible use is actually the best way to go about it. Mm. Because again, like I think if we take a step back, right, and if we let go of this idea that the use of AI is good and we should think of AI as this efficient solution to governance issues, and if we think of it as just another governance mechanism that is being proposed, the first instinct of anybody who's like dealing with the law or dealing with governance in general would be to say, well, what is the legal basis for it, right? Like why and how do we have the authority to be able to use the system because it has such profound societal implications. So I think what Santa Clara County there is trying to do is is get closer to that kind of model, which I welcome. So Amsterdam 
Barcelona and London, they've worked together to create something called the Global Observatory of Urban AI. Mm -hmm. And the goal is to educate other cities on five principles of AI implementation they've all agreed on based on fairness and non-discrimination, transparency and openness, safety and cybersecurity, privacy protection, and sustainability. So I'm wondering if you're familiar with these cities' AI implementation and regulations and what you think about this idea of the global observatory of urban AI and these principles. I think, you know, when you say those principles, especially when you list them out, right, they sound like heaven. They sound like almost mm-hmm. perfect, like we want to be fair <laughs> and non-discriminatory and like transparent and sustainable and things like that. I think it's well-intentioned, right? Mm-hmm. But I think mm-hmm. it's ultimately not practically useful because mm-hmm. I've had the experience of like talking to engineers like, you know, way back, I say way back, but I mean like six years ago. Yeah. Uh, technical standardization. <laughs> That's bodies. way back to tech, yeah. <laughs> that is way back, yeah. <laughs> back when we were talking about big data and not AI, right? Right. And right. and we were talking about like fair big data. And this engineer just like looked me dead in the eye. He said, what does fair mean? Like, can you tell mm-hmm. me something that I can actually encode instead mm-hmm, of using mm-hmm, a word yeah. that means different things to different people, right? Absolutely. If you ask various people what transparency means, it has possibly like a million different permutations and combinations that would kind of qualify as being transparent. So I think the issue with ethical principles in isolation is that they seem really great, but then they don't help in clarifying different positions and they don't help in clarifying what we're actually aiming for. The metaphor that I often use is like, you know, if you think of a room, right, the ethical principles are like this strange ceiling Right. And we don't know where it ends and we don't know where it begins. We know that we're aiming high and we know that, like, you know, the intention is good and things like that. But we're not actually clear as to, you know, how we're going to get there. Right. And we're not clear as to what the actual standard is. Mm-hmm. But that's where I think the importance of like regulations and laws and existing laws, right? Like constitutional law and consumer protection and data protection, all of that comes in as like the minimum standard, right? That's like the floor of the room, right? So it gives us like a firm footing and we know where we're standing and we know what we're talking about. And then we can think about, you know, technical standards and stuff like that, helping us get to where we are, right? Mm. But when cities just talk about ethical standards and they, you know, they talk about like, we want to share this knowledge and have best practices and things like that. My experience has been that firstly, best practices is like corporate speak. (laughs) So it's also like subject to being co-opted a little bit by the people in the room who are often like representatives of companies and not necessarily civil society Mm. folk. I mean, I'm saying just globally, right? Like this is obviously not the case in every city. And secondly, the real question is how are we regulating it, right? Like what is the extent to which existing laws can help us understand what are legitimate and illegitimate users? I think that's the more important question. Like ethical principles are fine, they're good, but they're dangerous if we think of them as an end in and of themselves. Is there a way that principles can be effective or, you know, I'm wondering if there's, because I've heard of these you know, AI principles before in, you know, different cities and, you know, different cases. And they, mm-hmm. like you said, they sound really great, but I don't really know what they mean. And I don't know what you mean by these words. And I, it's not always clear the connection between the principle and the implementation of it. So have you seen a situation where the principles have actually come in handy and been useful? Or do you feel like, you know, as long as there's no law following it, it's kind of just for show? 
I've had the experience of working on like ethical principles and at different levels, right? So whether mm. it's at a technical standardization body like the Institute for Electrical and Electronics Engineers, mm-hmm. which is mostly industry driven, it's US based, but of course, like, you know, it's popular because it's come up with very important standards like Wi-Fi and stuff like that. Right. And when we were talking about ethical principles there, the argument that Article 19 made again, way back in 2016, was that we should ground ethical principles in legal standards, right? Right, And if you think of human rights as a legal and ethical standard, then you have the opportunity where not only are you aiming high, but you're also telling people what you actually mean, right? Because Mm, there are actual legal standards, there are tests, there's like years and years of jurisprudence and judgments that help us understand what we mean when we say like necessary and proportionate and like freedom of expression and privacy and stuff like that right so i think principles can be helpful when they are anchored to any kind of legal system that has a shared understanding between any two different entities because there is a common point of reference i think also that when companies mm. kind of like signal like these are our principles there's often i mean this is the definition of looking for a needle in a haystack. But, you know, when a company publicly states that it has X number of ethical principles that it wants to adhere to, that becomes the standard by which we judge the company externally, right? And so it's almost like showing the company why they're not reaching the ethical standard that they claim to or why they are or whatever. Right? So like, this is like my human rights lawyer brain working in terms of like how to use it for accountability mechanisms. But I think the, right. the short answer would be that like principles are useful when they're anchored to law and they're dangerous in isolation. We've talked a lot about what some of these cities and municipalities are doing and how they're maybe not doing the best job. Mm-hmm. What would your ideal AI regulation or guidance look like? And are there any companies or especially cities that are close to that? We've actually been thinking a lot about this in different contexts, right? Whether it's in the European Union that's currently looking at an AI act and is going through various iterations of a proposed regulation or looking at places like India and Myanmar, right, where there are barely any regulations, like not even data protection regulation. And I think the first hallmark of like effective and critical AI regulation would be to have legitimate and illegitimate uses at the outset, right? Mm. Because there is the tendency to ascribe value to AI because of its very nature is so high that we need like a sobering reality of, you know, these are legitimate uses and these are not. Like, so if you're going to use artificial intelligence to predict the future and make consequential decisions based on that, that should logically tell us that that is not the smartest thing to do. Right? So kind of like having clear lines as to these are legitimate users and these are not, I think is the first step. And deciding what the bright lines for different contexts are is helpful as well. I mean, you know, there are facial recognition bans in various parts of the world, right? And I think that that's a good first step because we're clearly establishing bright lines for what we will and will not stand for, right? Or the way I like to say it is, we push against this inevitability of AI as something that will happen because it's not inevitable. AI technologies become widespread because there is like market forces and governments who are keen to use this technology and create demand for it. But if we take a step back and say, we actually, we're not going to ask for this technology to be thought of as lawful in the first place. I think that's, that's a good first start. The second is, I think, 
grounding uses in a legal basis before we invest time, money, attention, energy into them is also helpful. Only legitimizing technologies once we can legally argue for their use is, it seems like a pretty straightforward ask, but it is staggering how rarely that is actually done. And I think, you know, if you look at existing regulations like the EU AI Act, for instance, having some kind of grasp over the technical limitations of systems is really important. For instance, in the EU Act, like emotional recognition is looked at as limited risk. When if you actually look at what these systems claim to be doing, they should be, you know, completely disallowed on a fundamental rights basis, but they're not. So also having that kind of shared language would be really important. And finally, I think that a risk-based approach to say like these are high-risk systems and low-risk systems are fine, but we also need to have like a rights-based approach where we put the individuals and individual harm ahead of like, you know, company interests and things like that, especially when we're thinking about like regulation and, and safeguards and redressal. So there's been a lot of research and coverage of some of the fundamental problems with the biases that are baked into the development of AI and the data sets that they're trained on. Mm -hmm. Do you think that regulation or more scrutiny about the development of AI is helpful? Or do you think it's more important to focus on the use and application as we've been talking about so far? I think regulation actually has to look into, you know, design, development, and deployment. Mm. Also, because I don't think that there is such a thing as like unbiased data sets, right? There's always going to be bias depending Fair. on who you are. And I think the dangerous like tendency that I'm seeing across different jurisdictions is like this idea of like de-biasing, which is going to de-bias this data set, right? Like that's not a thing. Technically, socially, you know, it's not possible. And I think for us to think that like regulation will fix that problem is actually quite harmful because again, like much like the registers, right? We're distracting from other problems. So for instance, like I think a lot of people talk about like facial recognition accuracy, right? And so they say like this has a tendency of misrecognizing black women. And so the solution isn't to make it less biased so it's better at recognizing black women. The solution is to think about the social, political, institutional context within which these systems are used because the bias is not just built into the algorithm but also in the way that it's used and the institutions that use it. Right. So I think if regulation has to look at bias, it has to look at bias throughout the life cycle of these algorithms from the time that they're conceptualized to the time that they're used to the time that they continue to be used. And I think the question of like de-biasing is something that we need to be super critical of. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. for listening to Dev News. This show is produced and mixed by Levi Sharp. Editorial oversight is provided by Peter Frank, Ben Halpern, and Jess Lee. Our theme music is by Dan Powell. If you have any questions or comments, dial into our Google Voice at plus one nine two nine five zero zero one five one three or email us at pod at dev.to. Please rate and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. 